welcome back everybody to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. I'm sat here chatting with John Tejada from Los Angeles. And many of you will know of John Tejada as a producer of electronic music. And I was actually tossing it up, John, before we started recording, whether to call it house or techno, or what what, what would you call it? Or do you not sort of see those lines? I always just sort of call it electronic music because um, I feel like both were regional words. You know, Detroit was, uh, techno was Detroit's and house was Chicago's. And I feel like at its inception, the music wasn't that different. It was, they were both emotive, um, groovy, melodic genres. And I think mm. that's obviously changed 30 plus years later. So now it depends, you know, I say like, if you say house in Berlin, it means something really different than when you say house in Los Angeles. And then I think maybe the same for techno, although I think techno has now uh, basically become you know, Berghain, that's techno, uh, where to me, techno is still mm. sort of beatless, Derek May and Carl Craig tracks, you know? Um, so it, it just depends on perspective. So I, I just keep it simple and say electronic music. <laughs> right, right. Fair enough. I mean, I, as I've said to you before, I've always found your, well, maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, some of your music, I got into it because it had a certain orbital green album quality to it. I love that. <laughs> I've got no idea what those sounds are, but I hear them every so often. So it's kind of big, chunky chords or chord sounds. Yeah, chords. Um, yeah, the transposed but, chord thing. You know, it's been great that actually Paul has told me he's had to Shazam some of my tracks because, huh? I mean, you know, that's the ultimate compliment. So it's very, very cool to hear. Um, but yeah, I think the transposed, transposed chord is the sort of late eighties, early nineties throwback thing. And I just have such a soft spot for that, you know, as well as like 808 state and those kind of early things. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, obviously you're a fan of Orbital and artists like that. I mean, I was listening to one of your DJ mixes, um, earlier on and this, I think the second track was by somebody called science. It was on plus eight and I'd never heard it before. Yeah. That there's some, there's some good tracks that didn't, make the sets or the charts you know there's there's a lot of hidden gold in that catalog i think mm. really really current sound how long have you been making music for john i um um uh, let's see i'll give you the the long answer condensed um i was born in vienna austria both my parents were classical musicians my dad sort mm. of got me started on piano at the age of four um but the reason i mentioned that is because um, even at an early age, my sort of reality was that um, this is what you do. You wake up every day and you practice your instrument. So I have a lot of friends who didn't have that support from their mm. parents or whatever it may be. So I always had this reality that like uh, music was kind of a way, uh, a thing that you can heavily incorporate into life, right? And it's a serious thing. So mm. even back then I was... I don't know if it was against my will or not, but doing little piano performances for my first grade class and stuff, you know. Right. Um, I moved to the States when I was eight, and that's when I kind of discovered, um, uh, wait, I'll keep it short, but... Um, you, can, I, no, you, can, I, you, can, you can make it long if you need to, but... Uh, all right. you... Well, what, what, I, what I found immediately here, even when I was super young at the age of eight, because um, I was already really fascinated by music... But what I thought was really interesting here, which you didn't have in Austria, was people really defined themselves by what they were into, right? So you had like mm. punks or like metal Hesher dudes. or And then you all of a sudden, I was like, 
what are those guys, are those guys going to fight? Oh no, they're going to dance against each other. And I just thought that was amazing, <laughs> you know? And then you had like boom boxes playing like, uh, you know, Nucleus and Africa Mimbata and Marley Marl and stuff. And, and that sound, those instruments are still kind of the revered instruments uh, today. And th those are the sounds my ears still gravitate, gravitate to. Cause you mentioned like the green album and mm. I do remember when the shop kind of first put that on, I love the spaciousness in it. I think that's a kind of key thing that it makes it really special. It was this kind of freak record I find at the time, but um, mm. going even, you know, 15 years prior to that, there was a spaciousness to these electronic sounds and this kind of, you know, this future thing to it that we think of with, or at least that we want out of techno. I, I myself at least want that, you know, this kind of dreamscape of, of futurism and, machines right so right um so anyway my ear kind of led me towards a first not and i started hearing dj mixes and i was like how are they putting this music together so uh my mom being supportive uh got me my first sort of set of they weren't belt driven but they were just about as bad like some realistic decks so i got some decks at like age 11 or 12 which was amazing of her and i started emulating the DJs on the radio. And then not too soon after I started having this thought of like, well, wait, how do they actually make this stuff? So um, I was much more in the hip hop at the time, which again, mm. those sounds and machines are the same. And that's what led me to kind of what you and I are listening to a lot of these days. Mm. Um, so I got a four track and like a little kind of, you know, SK one Casio sampler thing. Although I think I had the realistic version. Um, I guess I had realistic everything, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was the affordable thing. They even made a Moog, which was quite good back in the day. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I got a four track and like sampling things using a little, um, I had a Digitech loop delay that could sample like 7.6 seconds. And I was working with a lot of rappers. So like four mm. tracks, loops, rappers, scratching, we did a lot of that stuff. And then finally I, I've started to get, um, close with DJ Newmark back then around, I guess it was 1990. Mm. And he had, um, he had some machines and he was producing real tracks and he was making demos. And um, so he was, he was kind of my intro to like, oh, wow. Like we could like make this at home, right? We're talking like 89, 90 here. So now of course you can make it at home. This, you, you would almost think the opposite now. Like why would you make it anywhere else, right? But back then, it was mm. really different times. Um, yeah, and he um, uh, he showed me the way, I guess, more than we both realized. And I bought my first workstation from him, which was the um, Ensonic EPS, and mm -hmm. that was that was I think in nine yeah nineteen ninety. It was kind of like a year of hip hop production on it and trying to figure that out. And then in ninety one, I met Aaron Laviste, who I still collaborate with now, mm. and he had some um. He had a Juno, a 909, HR-16 drum machine, you know, just a bit of, we both kind of had a little bit of gear. And um, I remember I played him, a, a, I think I played him Adventures uh, Beyond the Ultra World album. Mm. And we sort of drove separately. I think we were going to my house after we had just met. And once we sort of arrived, he, he was just like, well, this is what I want to make, you know? And I, I was like, me too. So we started working uh constantly and we're still sort of at it um so that's a long story <laughs> so was i mean was that orb album the, the their debut was that sort of something you aimed at for a couple of years or did you just use that as an inspiration and then sort of aimed at something else a little bit none of that 
came out because we, we didn't really realize another part of the um, evolution. We didn't realize you could actually release music till like three years later in a way. Um, right. But what I really liked about it is I was kind of transitioning from hip hop. Right. And mm. but I, I, part of hip hop was also like Art of Noise and, and some Chicago and some KMS stuff, you know, somehow stuff would find its way into the DJ set. So it was all kind of like a blend of the culture. It wasn't such different genres. So it was all kind of part of the same pot of gumbo, right? Mm. So what I really liked about the UK stuff was um, they were really taking elements of hip hop. It wasn't like, you know, it was like, there's here's some hip hop sprinkled in, here's some Tangerine Dream, here's some Chicago Acid House, you know, it was just all like, and I just, I love that combination. I just thought it was so, so fresh and it mm. really inspired both of us. So, I mean, because that's really when I, I got into electronic music was the early 90s with, actually it wasn't that Orb album, it was the second one, UF Orb. And at that time, there just seemed to be an explosion of really interesting, futuristic sounding electronic music, especially coming out on Warp. And then obviously, you know, the Hartnell Brothers with Orbital and, and it, it all seemed to sort of be coming together. I mean, I know that you know the guys from Plaid. So, like at that, I think in the mid nineties, I was I was in awe of Plaid because they'd managed to pull in Bjork onto right. one of their albums, right? So it just seemed at that time, and maybe it was just because I was of a certain age that everything just seemed to be sort of congealing in in just this electronic world of music that also drew on a lot of other tropes. Yeah, I don't know. Was that my age, John, or was that was that actually how it happened? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know how, how much we differ in age. I'm 46 now, but, um, I'm 48. It was just, yeah, it was just this, you know, for me it was the last explosion of new ideas and, um, mm. I don't know, it felt like rule breaking. And then you had, you know, the square pusher Aphex programming yes. style. And that was just like, you know, I mean, you had masters like Fotec and, uh, even though the, you know, sort of warp stuff was less danceable it was just like you know you had the sense of it of like are you allowed to do that i remember i i gave a uh one of those albums to my friend and he he brought up later that i said to him you got to listen to this man it's going to change your life which i don't remember <laughs> saying right but he told me later like that he thought like i'm sure it's going to be good because you like cool music but like it's not going to change my life and then he was like oh like it actually yeah it actually did change my life you know <laughs> so those kind of were the the times we were in where like something could just really grab a hold of you. And it, it could have been our age too, right? Like, I don't mm. think at a, I don't think I, I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed. Or I'd, I'd wonder if anything could affect us in that way at this stage in our lives. You know, I think it's just kind of natural that, uh, that people are just influenced by whatever happened at, at that part in their life, you know, kind of graduating high school type age i don't know i don't know because i mean i still i can still think of well yeah maybe it's a younger thing but even stuff back to when i was like 10 like when i mm. heard like art of noise beatbox it was like i mean that was a great example of like what's happening here what what is this mm. why do i like it so much this is weird you know like it, as cool as craftwork is i had the computer world cassette way back in the day like like numbers was a big tune but all the other ones and you know in german and stuff like I remember like not playing those around my friends because it was like it's a little weird, but I, I knew I liked it. A, I knew I liked it a lot, you know, like a lot, a lot. Um, See, so yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, we all kind of have our 
I think it matters more than just, it depends more than just on music. It depends on the people in our lives and where we're at and where we're at with our lives, you know, but I mean, mm. it's undeniable that music becomes a huge part of our lives. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Fotec and I remember hearing the hidden camera and I was very resistant to hearing it because somebody said, well, this guy's another drum and bass guy. And I was not into drum and bass. I'm still not really. But that record was so strange. I was like, well, what? this is not drum and bass. This is something more <laughs> abstract. But also it did have those qualities. It, it, just, it was just like you could dance to it, but maybe. And I've always, I've always enjoyed music like that. Music that you can sort of dance to, but you can listen to it at home. This is, I think, why I like your records and Orbital and all those kinds of things is because they work in a home listening setup as well as in a club. They sort of cross over into that, well, they sort of straddle those two spaces. And I wondered, is that, do you do that on purpose or is that just a happy accident? Um, I th- kind of unintentionally on purpose, I think. Well, definitely not on purpose. I was going to say the uh, the thing you said about Fotec is kind of like my favorite com- compliment that I get time to time, which is like, I don't really like this kind of music, but I like this one. You know, it's like perfect. Right. That's ex- <laughs> the best thing you could have ever said. Um, I always like, I was aware of, the, okay, like we had kind of a, a different scene here, right? I think the music that really affected you and I wasn't really here, but the record shops would get a lot of it on import. So Hmm. my kind of experience would be like ordering a record, going to pick it up and, um, which is still a thing that happens in Berlin, but not the rest of the world. But, you know, I have fond (laughs) memories of like waiting for a record to come in, bringing it home, you know, sticking it on and just staring at the cover, uh, the whole time and maybe playing it a second time. Right. So I really kind of get a lot of emotion from listening. And then the times when I would try to go out, there was just so much stuff kind of associated with that I didn't like. Uh, Sometimes Mm. things line up perfectly, but I guess I never had those dance all night experiences, which are, you know, which could give me lots of negative points. (laughs) But um, I just really, for me, it was always auditory, this this euphoria from from listening. And it was less about Mm. being in a space or moving. So, um, I guess, you know, my music is sort of geared towards a office chair rave, you know, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> it's kind of a, a seated boogie, you know, it's, right. it's halfway, like you could, you could get up and dance. And some of my stuff, I did figure out how to make it functional. Cause I did obviously start playing loads of gigs all the time. So mm. I do, I do have that in my pocket when I need it, but I do prefer music that can be enjoyed. Like you said, like, um, you know, it's not lacking anything if you just want to listen to it, um, but you can also hear it in other places. I hope, anyway. I have no, I don't know. You, you'd know better than I, but I, I, I well, like I mean, work. I'm just, yeah, I was just trying to think of um, something that I was even j- just before we started recording. I was playing a a really old Richard Kirk album, which I'd never heard before. I think it was released on Warp, and it would it, that really wouldn't really work in a club so much. Right. But I, I'm just trying to think. I'm just sort of looking at my my records, hoping for some kind of inspiration of something that sort of. I mean, okay, I'll give you an example, right? So there's Etap Kyle. A lot of his stuff, I find it a bit too club focused. But his last EP was just spot on. Like it was just sort of. It had enough of that emotive quality that you could really just sort of sit back and take it in at home with a pair of headphones or just loud and a pair of speakers, and. 
I know that he's more of a club guy, but yet he's made this EP, which I, I think is really interesting because I wasn't expecting that. And I, I guess it's also because it was unexpected that that's probably why I like it even more. You know, there's kind of things like Forest Drive West and um, what else did I buy? Neon Chambers EP, which again is sort of more club focused, but it does sort of work in a home environment. And I, that really excites me. Again, it's probably an age thing because I did go out clubbing all night in the nineties, so <laughs> I did have those experiences. Um, I guess it's just but, a good music thing, right? It's supposed to sort of strike you on multiple levels. So, well, yeah, because a lot of techno is now, you know, there's that there's a Twitter sphere um, techno conversation makes jokes about business techno, and I sort of understand because a lot of it is fairly functional, a bit boring, and doesn't cross over into or doesn't withstand closer scrutiny if you are listening to it at home or you know well, it's, on the way it's to work it's become a kind of paint by numbers formula right it's become a thing that you can do and it's become more of a um for me it's when big business entered the picture you know mm. now you've got even the cool underground djs you've got them sort of jumping around and lip syncing the tunes you know so um right it there there is but there, to, even though I'm kind of poo pooing that there's a real talent to that which I don't have and I could never mm. pull that off right so I just want to be behind the behind a curtain really like early black dog sets and just you know like yeah just let the music speak for itself man um, but um, yeah so I you know and I'm I'm also a, a teacher at Cal Arts and um, mm. there and. Uh, you know, your home YouTube. I mean, there's, if you search for any tutorial, it's like, well, the, the one thing that I always had problem with is like 10 things you're doing wrong in your mixes or 20 <laughs> things you got to know. And it's like, you know, any of these releases that we talked about, uh, these guys are not following that. I, I would say also all, all of the artists that still make a strong impact to us today, even new artists, mm. they are not following the script they are rewriting it and i think that's kind of how it's always been but i think because of the ease of information that's out there a lot of things have become you know a bit yeah just a bit monotonous right and then so then you have that idea from people who don't who don't have the time to investigate further of like oh i don't like that stuff it sounds like this right um but I think it's a, there's always been some degree of that, no matter mm. what genre. Uh, once you know, once there's money to be made, that changes things a little bit. And then the the releases that are sort of groundbreaking uh, don't really get their time to to shine. Possibly, a friend and I in the '90s used to joke that it's impossible to make. Well, it seemed back then, or even now, impossible to make a really bad techno track, but very difficult to make a really good one. So there was just so much that was just passable. Um, but, you know, you really had to work hard. And I think now it's a bit easier to find it, even though there's more of it. So there's a filter through. And I mean, I, I go to the Hardwax homepage quite a lot and just click through the sort of preview buttons, which is probably a horrible way to really work out what music I like. But I, I do the same, actually. And it's interesting you bring up Hardwax because I feel... Um they they curate so well so like uh, if i'm like let's say i'm looking for digital music right to play on mm. cdjs um you don't get 8000 releases per week you get like 10 and it's like oh i can manage that you know and and maybe mm. sometimes i'll find something maybe sometimes i won't but um yeah it definitely is a 
place that will filter things out for you a bit more, which I don't know if a lot of places are still doing that. That's kind of like why we would go to the shops. Again, something, well, in normal times, something that you have no problem with, but the rest of the world, like we can't spend a day record shopping anymore, unfortunately, because we don't have any yeah. more shops. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I support Hardwax because it is a local independent store. And yeah. also because, I, th- I mean, I know Mark fairly loosely, Mark Canestas, who owns it. Yeah, um, same. And yeah, so it's kind of nice to have, oh, like I know the guy that runs this store and I'm going to go and buy records there. It's that nice sort of like local feeling. It kind of gives you a sense of connection to a place, right? I know that sounds kind of a, a little bit romantic, but I no, think but that, those I things- think that was the point of it. And then you get right. you get the cool status and you can walk in and it's like, I saved you, I saved you a couple things I think you'd like, you know, and that that was mm. like- that was when you know you were in, you know. <laughs> um, but um, well, I'm yeah. not in. I mean, yeah, because you lived here for a while, right? Or you? No, just... I. I mean, I've been there so much because uh, just uh, I'd spend my off days there. But no, I never made the move. Mm. I think I'm the only one that never did. Can we talk about your home studio setup, John? Sure. Can you, can you tell us what you use for sort of monitoring, playback, speakers, headphones, um, that kind of thing? Sure. It's actually become um, my one vice, I think. <laughs> so it's mm. a perfect question. I think gear-wise, I've um, collected a few things, but honestly, I could really reduce it to just the two best ones and and be really happy with that. But when it comes to headphones and speakers, I think uh, I will keep tweaking that forever. Um, right. At the moment, <laughs> at the moment, um, I've got some Genlec 8351As. I believe that's the ones, the sort of large yep. ones. Yep. Um, I do have these little Oritone type cubes, but they're by a local company called Reftone. And... Mm-hmm. Um, don't use them so much, but for that sort of, um, you know, for that sort of oratony kind of thing, I think they uh, they do sound a lot more helpful with with the kind of music we were just talking about, right? Yeah, I yeah. think um, it's possible that with some other mixes, you you know, the vintage oratones, you know, it depends what you're into, but um, yeah, these are pretty helpful for that. Um, I I've I was buying tons of headphones. So I have all this kind of Sennheiser like 600, 650 Bayer Dynamic and all this stuff. And then I think we both kind of talked about how we finally like bought a pair of uh, Sennheiser 800, uh, yes, HD 800Ss, yes, yeah. which I still find to be remarkable, but um, they roll off so heavy that again, for it's more of a genre thing. Um, and they're sort of like a magic trick. Uh, in a way, the Genelec monitors are that way as well, but they do work. Uh, Mm. quite well but um yeah so i think that kind of launched me into like and i think also i don't know i'd be curious to hear what you think but i think in the last few years i mean the this industry has really taken off like i don't remember 20 pairs of two thousand dollar headphones coming out every month you know <laughs> it's like that's a oh, whole sure. new crazy yeah. thing i mean like people were just happy to have these crappy akgs and that like those were headphones let me check it on the headphones but i think um yeah, with everything, including listening, moving the headphones, um, I 
I find it really interesting. So I started, um, I started getting into that a bit. And then, um, uh, an old acquaintance, acquaintance of mine is Alex Rossen, who, uh, uh, Rossen audio design. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't even think I tried them on my head for ages. Uh, we, I, we were just kind of hang out and stuff, but you know, he makes the, the rad zeros and, um, so for people Those, that, um, um, yeah. so just to kind of just flesh out this story a little bit for people that are listening at home or in the car or wherever they are, Alex Rustin used to be, I guess, uh, the, I guess you call him the lead designer, the main designer, or one of the main guys at Odyssey. And, yeah. then, he, and then he went to work for, I can never remember this. Uh, um, Shinola. Shinola, thank you, yes. He was, yeah. There's something about CEO in there, maybe of... of design yeah um, i don't know i mean he's a he's a he's a great friend you go over there and he's always building something just for fun mm. uh, or even with headphones he'll say like here take these try this try this out i'll say what what are they and he's like they're <laughs> just they're i they're they're nothing they're one of a kind just try them out let me know what you think you know mm. so that's that's really fun he builds speakers and amps and stuff so i mean perfect for for me and he's he runs a music label as well a, a music label a record label um <laughs> Uh, so he, I mean, he's been very involved in, in music for a really long time and he knows it well. And he's also a really good producer. So, um, so yeah, anyway, I, I mostly produce with these, uh, these neat monitoring cans that my friend made because, uh, mm. he seems to know what he's doing. And, uh, I, I like to just kind of trust him with like, you know, what I, what I'm hearing. So is it fair to say you monitor more now with the red? Zeros and the Genelex. I do because um, even though the Genelex can do room correction, which I find to be um, too dramatic, uh, and I dial it down quite a lot, um, mm. I find that well, I didn't, I don't have a room within a room built. I don't have a perfect room, um, so I've got, I've got room problems that uh, even if I did invest thousands of dollars in, there's not guaranteed they're going to be fixed, and. Um, yeah. I've tried other headphones that kind of try to do a bit of too much wow factor, right? Which isn't very helpful to me when I'm trying to mix. I want to be able to, you know, I think I think my whole life there's just kind of been this way of working for myself and a lot of people where whatever monitoring we have, whether it's speakers or headphones, um, you're doing a mix and you realize like, okay, like that sounds good, but I know this has to come down a bit, or I know this has to come up a bit. And you just kind of learn that way of working. So, um, to have something that you can actually trust by just listening to takes quite a lot of getting used to actually. So, Mm. um, yeah, the, the rads are doing that for me. And, um, I mostly use the Genlex now for the last 10%. And, um, yeah, it's helped me with my stereo imaging quite a lot. And, um, just the level of things where they should be. Um, I, I honestly I never felt like I've been any good at mixing, even though sometimes I get some compliments about it. But I feel like after uh, 29 years, I'm finally starting to get <laughs> some idea of how to do a mix that I'm happy with. Um, so yeah, that's exciting. And a, a lot has to do with the, a lot of that has to do with the rads, I think. Just, I mean, that raises the question for me is like, because you've been making music for 20 years, um, or maybe well, well, longer than that. Well, but nearly 30, while, yeah. But Right. So uh, I'm wondering whether the the playback technology has in some way influenced the music that you make. And sort of follow-up question to that is that 
I also wonder if you now play back some of your you know music you did make twenty years ago on your Genelex on your Rads, does it still sound okay, or do you do you hear mistakes because of you know inferior headphones in the nineties? Oh no, it, it sounds atrocious. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of uh, again. Uh, a lot of these records we've we've talked about when you when you mm. stick them on like they're a little rough around the edges but i i do kind of prefer that sound again it might just be kind of our age thing but i think now there's so much processing you can do to perfect things right and mm. and just to sometimes just to hear the sound of a desk without being able to put five processors on every channel which you couldn't do back then in a real studio you know you just had what you had there were no plugins mm. and DAWs. So even though some of those re- releases we love are a little rough around the edges, they, they're they sort of defined by that, right? Like you could kind of tell who did what, kind of almost based on their mix downs. And mm. now I feel like anybody could, with a little bit of work, can make anything sound like anything, really. You know, I mean, then there's a debate of using um real desks and pre's and stuff which is totally valid but i mean you know to get it in a ballpark so um yeah but um yeah to to answer the first part um when you can hear more details and more flaws you know things that i couldn't hear before um yeah it makes you produce differently because you can uh, you can take care of those things, even if a lot of people aren't going to hear them. It's that kind of thing when people speak about why they need to get a proper mastering engineer with a proper room. It's because they've got a full, um, full frequency system mm-hmm. without any boosts or dips to lead them the wrong way. And they can hear the stuff that most likely you aren't hearing. And even if there's something you can't hear that's way down at like 20, 15 hertz, if the energy's there, it's affecting the stuff that comes uh, on top of it, especially th- mm. since things work in octaves. So if there's a problem at 25, it can affect 50 and 100 and 200 and 400. So yeah, yeah. Um, once you, when you can hear that stuff, and for me, the new kind of, I feel like the new belt level is the top end. Like now I'm actually rolling things off because I'm like, Ooh, that I can hear that, you know, I've taken care of my ears as well as I can. So I think I've doing all right there. Um, even though I probably can't hear above 15, um, if there's things above that, I can hear how the things below it are getting affected. So mm-hmm. once I start to roll those things off by low passing them, things just become clearer. And that's something I never would have done in all my years prior is worried about low passing something. It's just like, Oh, that's, that's fine. So, uh, yeah, by being able to hear this stuff a lot more clearly, um, it really, really benefits what I'm doing, and it clears it clears things up in a way that um, I, you know, it's like you you don't really realize it or learn it until you're just actually really hearing it for yourself. Um, and I think that that level of um, hearings become a lot more attainable. Obviously, the loudspeakers are a lot more money, but a lot of these headphones in the even close to you know one k one to two thousand are giving people the option of really high res playback and then of mm. course you have the problem of left and right but there's a lot of utilities out there um, that kind of take care of that to emulate speakers a bit um, so yeah, yeah I mean a lot there's a few headphone amps now that have a crossfeed setting to sort of 
give you a bit of a sort of center mix illusion so you can work with that i guess i don't know whether you would work with that yeah well the thing is um if you're in if you're in headphones straight out of the box and some headphones actually sound great this way but um let's take something uh super extreme like the 800s's by example which are Mm. you know the widest things on the planet so now you're getting super wide exact left and right but when you're listening to speakers both ears are picking up on both speakers so that's it's it's kind of they do have some where you can tweak the center up and down and the angle and the sort of thing but um the crosstalk just kind of emulates what you might be hearing in your ears where you don't hear a hard left and a hard right Mm. um is that what you use speakers for, John, to, to kind of help you with that sort of crosstalk at the end? Um, there's some things that the speakers help me with, which I don't know if I know how to properly put in the words, but um, one thing is the physicality of it a little bit. You know, these yeah, speakers totally. go quite low. So even though the headphones go low, and that's another thing that would be fun to talk about, um, because a lot of playback systems, uh, especially headphones, say, oh, well, you know, 15 hertz up to blah 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 but it's like yeah well how much are you rolling off below 100 and right um you know we had this talk about uh more full range sounding headphones and people are like oh these are bloated i'm like no those that's a full that's a full frequency range anyway <laughs> that's just preference we can get back to that but um there's there you know there's still is something different with a with a driver in a room than uh, a driver on your head but i mean um, those lines are getting blurred, but yeah, there's, you know, I just kind of sitting in my spot, I have, if something, if I feel that very low stuff in a weird way or something sounds quiet and I'm feeling a lot of energy and rumble, then I know like something's wrong. So, mm. um, it's, it's that kind of physicality, right. That, that I check for and just yeah just to have another check even even if someone was purely based in headphones i'd say get a second pair of headphones and then you know that's it's almost like having two sets of speakers so i mean i've got the mm. rads i've got the genlax and then i've got the reftones and between those three um you know that's that should do it do you sense a certain amount of resistance from colleagues you know professional colleagues musicians that you associate with in using headphones to make or mix, or even master music. I mean, I mean, I, I know we could bring in Stefan Betka here, who just oh, mastered sure. a bun- bunch of your records, in. right? <laughs> let's bring yeah. him in because I mean, I've been to his studio and it's got like an amazing room and the ATCs, and I don't get the feeling he uses headphones at the moment, but I also get the feeling he might want to. You're, I don't know. You're spot on, actually. So, right, uh, me, he, and I have a. He's like my big brother. We have a long, long friendship, and I've I've learned so much from him. And um, and now he's you know now he's kind of asking me for my opinion on things, which I just find amazing. So it's that kind of like that's nice, you know that that long because yeah. because a lot of times you know you get this kind of big brother thing, and then to hmm. to become a bit more equal is really it's just a nice place to be, you know. So um, so exactly to your to your point and your thinking, he uh. He asked me about, you know, he's like, well, what do you think about these headphones? And I was like, yeah, man, they're good. You know, I, and I know his sound and I was like, you should try them. You know, and it's just, it's just a thing where he's not used to doing it because again, like sure. the options, even myself, if you would ask me three years ago and I was just playing around with, you know, uh, 
this sort of cheaper stuff I mentioned, it's just not that satisfying. And it is a shame that I think the prices will come down. You know, it, it does take a bit of investment, but it's the same with speakers. So I think it's fair mm. enough. I mean, if you want something nice, uh, got to pay for design. But um, but yeah, I, I feel he, well, yeah, he has this curiosity of now of what's possible with them I, uh, more as a second uh second set of monitoring but yeah i mean um yeah he's he's quite curious i think once he once he tries them he'll he'll like them a lot I, and again i think this is something new i know another mastering engineer and very good mix engineer that i really look up to here in la mm. and when i mentioned like because he, he knows alex quite well also and it's like man have you tried them like they're really helping me out and he's like yeah i don't know about that you know but i, I know it's the kind of thing when like once he tries and be like, whoa, like that, that kind of works. And it, it's just all personal preference, right? I mean, this might only work for me, but um, yeah, but it works. Um, sure, I, but I, yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I don't know. I've got nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all, yeah. Well, I just, I'm just, I'm always curious as to, as to what, you know, professional mu musicians use to make their music, because I've always had this sense that active monitors are obviously a mainstay, but headphones, not so much. And you don't really see interviews. I mean, you're, I mean, the classic sort of seventies studio images. You know, of, of like Jimmy Iovine sat in front of a massive console and big speakers, and the thought of him using headphones is just ridiculous, right? But yeah. As we've as we sort of, you're right. Headphone. The headphone market has expanded enormously, especially at the high end. Ten years ago, you couldn't so easily buy a headphone north of 1500 bucks and now you've got many many different choices and they are better and i'd say even at you know five six seven eight hundred bucks you can get an amazing sound i mean I'm, at the moment i'm thinking about dan clark audio's eon 2 which is just a spectacular headphone for the money and and for me comfort is a big factor so i always tend to sort of lean towards super comfortable headphones um and I was a bit, I was quite surprised about the Rustons actually, because I know they're a bit heavier and the, the side clamping force is quite strong, but they're actually super comfortable because those cushions, uh, they just seem like a mile thick. They just go yeah. on forever. Right? They're like <laughs> Tempur-Pedic pillows, you know? Right. Um, they're just, they're just lovely. And they, they really seal you in to what you're listening to, right? Yeah. I'm doing really long sessions with them and I, I never have to like yank them off my head. But again, that's all preference too, right? Some people mm. just might not be able to stand it. I think with the, just lastly on the, um, the monitoring stuff, it, it, it really is just as personal. It's, it's whatever works for people, right? Like, uh, mm. um, but for me personally, my problem is these bedroom studios and, um, it'll never sound great no matter what speakers I have, but I know when I throw on a pair of headphones that works for me, um, you know, they, they're not subjective to the weather or the room or my position of where I'm sitting. So that has a lot of benefits, uh, to help me. Um, so for me, for me, that's why it's been such a kind of revelation because there's nothing worse. And I get it also from so many students of like, can you check my mix? I, I don't know what's happening. And then when I hear mm. it, you know, the problem might be kind of obvious, like, oh, you're not hearing that frequency, you know? And it's because of, uh, it's because of room acoustics and, and there's nothing worse than 
not being able to get your mix right. It's so frustrating. And because you're, you're making, you're making, you might actually be a fantastic mix engineer and you might be making choices on what you're hearing by what the speakers are telling you. So at that point, now it's, now it's technically not your fault as far as scale, uh, skill of being a mix engineer, but it's like someone's come and sabotaged, sabotaged your rig and EQ'd it in a weird way. <laughs> and now you're doing a mix the best you can. It sounds incredible, but you take it anywhere else. And then the flaws in your room start to come out. And it's so frustrating. And I don't know a single person that hasn't dealt with that their whole lives, you know? So, um, yeah. And I'll, I'll always kind of recommend like, well, try try for second monitor and get, you know, invest in some, a good pair of headphones that might, you know, help you make these judgments a little easier. But then you have the problem of switching back to speakers and it sounds horrendous because, you know, you're having phase cancellations or build up and it, it just isn't going to sound right. So yeah, it's, um, you've said exactly the right word, sabotage. The room does sabotage your sound. I mean, it's the, it's the same for people like me or just, you know, in it for the playback and the listening pleasure, although it's not quite as critical as it would be for, say, you and your students, because I would imagine your students are making tracks and mixes at home and then bringing them to class for you to talk about. Yeah. And and the playback system in our class is horrendous, even though it's a great school. They're nice speakers. It's just a, it's a large room and, you mm. know, there's all kinds of buildup and cancellation, so... But you just released a compilation of their work, is that right? I did. Yeah, yeah. I was sort of. It was nice. I played some of it. I didn't like all of it, but I loved some of it. Especially, was it the first track that sounds like plaid? Oh, well, you're welcome to gr- you're welcome to grade them for me. <laughs> no, <I'm> <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> um, the first one was fantastic, and he right. uh, this uh, Max Jaffe he he has sort of in within a year. I don't take any credit for this, but within a year, he sort of switched departments to our music tech, and he. He's a percussionist. He's he's actually I think quite accomplished, um, and sponsored by this drum trigger company. But um, yeah, he sort of discovered this stuff just in the last year on his own. So it's kind of like going back to what we were talking about earlier. I guess this music still in this day and age can really have that effect on uh, on someone, you know. Sorry, you're saying that he's sort of discovered early Plaid records. Is that what you're... I, I don't know if they're early Plaid records. I don't know what was kind of driving right. it, but it might have been uh, other students or who knows, but he really dove into this type of style. And I think that's only maybe like the second or third track he's done in that style. And it's just like really accomplished, you know. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm... The school asks... I have so many friends that are at, at CalArts and... Uh, you know, I, I always kind of seem to be busy. Um, sometimes I'm a lot less busy than I seem to be, but no one ever wanted mm. to bother me with the the uh, the invitation. And someone finally made the invitation if I wanted to teach a class. So um, I did not pursue that. I don't have education for that. So, you know, imposter syndrome was in the back of my head, but I just thought like, I can do this. I can do this. I've been like a guest at some stuff, but um, mm. obviously some things were shaky, but this this semester was my third semester and I kind of had a little bit more confidence in it of like, okay, this is why I'm here. This is what I want to do because the um, what I found out later was the jazz department every year they record a jazz album at Capitol, Capitol Studios. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a that's a big deal for the students and school. And um, uh, I didn't realize that till after I had the idea, but um, I got in 
uh, Touch, no pun intended, with uh, Martin, who runs Touch Music out of Wales, which is a charity yes. label charity for Macmillan, label. Yeah, yeah. Macmillan Cancer Support. Mm. And um, I do some work for him, including some um, mystery bits here and there, which are fun, which I'll tell you about, <laughs> but no one else. <laughs> but um, he's really fun to work with, and he, he's a great person with a great cause. And I just thought, like, I wonder if he'd be up for doing this, because obviously, like, we could release... We could release, anybody can release music themselves now, but to to actually make it real world of like having a deadline that has nothing to do with me, it's like, look, if you don't meet the deadline, you miss the boat. I can't do mm. anything about it. And it just put this kind of real world experience into the project. And I really loved it. I think I think everyone did. So I'm, I'm hoping that every spring there's going to be a volume of future stars. Uh, okay, yeah, because that, there's, something, there's been some... Great stuff come out on that Touch label, uh, and a lot of it as well. I mean, he's did these mega compilations. That I've o- often struggled to get through all of them. But was it that label that also did the Covert EP? Yeah. Right. Lots of that secret, was great. Lots of secret right. people on there. <laughs> yeah, lots of secret people. It was, everything was uncredited, right? So you, you're yeah. like, is this Aphex Twin? Is, right. this, is this Tom Jenkinson? I've got no idea, but it could be. Um, could, and I, I love the idea of that. And also, it was just a few tracks, so it wasn't a... It wasn't, you know, two weeks of listening. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's the thing, like 300 tracks. Uh, I mean, it's great, but uh, it's quite a quite a daunting assignment to... <laughs> I always dig into them for the... Um, for the anything, if it, anything has the future sound of London on it or Humanoid, I'm on it. Because I just... I just those guys just throw away tracks in all sorts of different directions. Yeah. And... So you got to you got to keep up, and often they can be real gems. So I just, I just, it's FOMO now that's just driving me. <laughs> just I don't want to miss out on a future sound of London gem. So yeah, yeah. he's he's become really good friends uh, with um, I forgot which one. I, I assume it's it's not Gaz, the other one, the sort of Brian serious Brian one. Dugans. I think. Right. Wrong about that, but they're very close, and uh, yeah. So covert definitely probably uh, interesting thing to listen to (laughs) for you (laughs) you say that releasing music has changed so much in the last 20 years i mean you've been running a your label palette recordings for is it 20 22 years uh i started in 96 so right 24 24 yep yeah trying to figure that out (laughs) what can you give us some insight into what has changed? I mean, obviously an awful lot, but I mean, were you focusing more on vinyl back then or was it digital releases or CDs? I mean, it's, it, it's hard yeah. to know really. Uh, in the nineties, it was all vinyl. I, there were CDs, but that, that only came into play for full lengths. Right. So, um, mm. yeah, the, the way it worked back then, um, which I'm still having a hard time letting go of, but, um, You'd press some records, you'd send test pressings to distributors. There's way less of those now. The, the big ones we used to work with are all gone. Mm. And um, they would send you a purchase order over fax. And, you know, they might say, I will take 800 of them. So then you tell the pressing plant, like, okay, these guys are taking 800. These guys are taking 200. Hard wants wants 100, blah, blah, blah. You know, so then you'd say, like, okay, I need to press 1,500 of these, and this is where they're going. Right. Then when things were getting really good, it was like... Uh, we're going to start with five thousand of these, and and uh, anyway, now we're now we're to five hundred being a really good 
run. Um, mm. So yeah, things have changed quite a bit. There, there are obviously a lot more opportunities. Um, yeah, there's there's many many positives, but um, that's a long that's a long conversation. But um, sure, this kind of kind of ran itself, right? Because you had all these shops, and mm. um, they would they were like, I mean, again, this is something you still have in your city, but. <laughs> The rest, I hate to keep bringing that up. I just think it's so amazing, and I love it, and that's why I love visiting. But you, you'd have um, the shops would play the new releases in the shop, and you know the DJs know what day the sh- the releases are being put on the floor. Mm. So um, they'd go to hang out and listen, and then if if there was a good record, I mean, a shop could sell dozens of copies in a weekend, right? So mm. you kind of didn't need PR; it was kind of taken care of by itself. And that's how things I think have shifted the most is how do you make your release stand out now? And it's really, really difficult, even if it's good or by a big producer, it just, none of that's automatic. Is, I mean, is it fair to say therefore then, because I looked at your discography just now and I had no idea you'd release so many 12 inch singles, right? Cause <laughs> I'm more of an albums person. So I'm thinking, well, has, has John Tejada become more of an albums release guy in the last five, maybe 10 years? Because it is harder to get heard, you know, with a 12 inch that might have six months of club life, so to speak, and then sort of is more easily forgotten than say a long player, which for me tends to have a longer shelf life. And, you know, people go back to them and you know revisit them and reassess them as well. You know, albums seem to be a, a thing that I'm refusing to let go of and I love them. And I just wonder whether, well, whether you feel the same way and whether, that line of thinking has influenced the way you make and release music. I do absolutely. Like I was mentioning before, my experience of kind of bringing records home and listening to them. Um, I think what it is is a lot of a lot of the labels I worked with are geared more towards um, DJs, right? So the, mm. the um, albums don't stick out so much with DJs. Those are more for home listening and getting features written and you know that kind of thing. But when it comes to like the functionality of club music things are much more defined on a 12 inch single so i think a lot of labels that i did work with that i only did singles for um my intention was you know could we do an album at some point um one of my favorite experiences was working with daniel bell with seventh city and Mm. that was always something we discussed but there's just so much more involved with properly releasing an album um and i did compile that stuff years later into a collection but even um, even in my sort of beginnings, my first kind of, I think, breakout was, um, well, it wasn't popular, but it was, at least for me, it felt like I was doing something. Um, I started working with a label in Essex called A13, and um, my first album was under the name Lucid Dream. Mm-hmm. And um, then the second one I did for them was under my name. Um, but even from the beginning, I was quite album focused and um i did a cup to uh i think i did three on my label and um there's a label called immigrant and a label called defocus which was run by the x clear people um uh, okay so there you know it's it's kind of a messy discography but um and then um yeah there, there's a few aliases and that kind of came out of labels especially back uh european labels in the mid 90s wanting an exclusive name so in order right. to not tie yourself down, you'd, you'd use a moniker. Um, but there is, you know, as, as, as important as 
the experience that we love of, of albums, um, uh, there is something about putting all your eggs in one basket for one song, you know, and like making that work. And it's a different kind of expression. And I feel like those, mm. those tracks in a way, they don't really have a place on albums, you know, it kind of like feels out of place where all of a sudden, you know, like, why is the intro so long? Why is there an outro? And, you know, so, um, for me, I, depending on what, what, mood I'm in and how, how I'm feeling inspiration wise, it is fun to, to do both really. It just, it just depends. Like if I've, if, if I think I'm being really clever about some sound I've made, then it's like, oh yeah, this needs to be a peak time thing that I can play. Right. Mm. Um, so yeah, it just depends. I think both are really fun, but. So does that mean that when you're making an album, the, the tracks you make, you have to really force them to get to the point much more quickly than you would do for a 12 inch because your 12 inch you could let it meander for a little bit and it could be a bit more functional as a dj tool right but on an album you're like no i can't have a i don't know a 16 bar intro it has to sort of develop more quickly is that is that the way you work no not not necessarily i think when working on an album i just feel like there's no pressure to have it be functional right it can just exist as music mm. it can be beatless it can have different rhythms i can change the time signature i mean like you know that's something not easy to pull off in a club is something different than four <laughs> four right so right. On, on an album like anything goes just just make music at least for myself you know that's how i sort of see it mm. um so i think those are kind of the differences uh i, I think an album's supposed to kind of Mm, you know, telling a story is a bit, bit, uh, but you too, but like, uh, it's, it's, just a, <laughs> it's, it's like, um, it, they should combine to form some type of theme, you know, otherwise you feel like you've got a compilation, right? Um, so it's, it's many pieces kind of expressing, you know, even if it's not a concept album, like, you know, Tomorrow's Harvest or something, I mean, there's still this kind of coherence to mm. it. I think. So do you always do you always start with a theme, John, when you're making an album, or does it emerge slowly as you're making tracks? Um I think I only did once sort of. Um but generally I don't like to put that pressure on the writing process. And I um I usually end up doing what I feel is more experimentation and, mm. and kind of trying to see if I can do certain things or learn certain things. And then if I've recorded maybe like four or five things and somehow it's like, sometimes I don't quite realize it. And then I realize like, Oh, this is, I got something going here. Let me, let me try to extend this to 10 or so songs and let's see if I can make a full length out of it. So that's been the process for most of them. Um, although I'm working on one now, which does have, uh, you got to hear a bit of it, that does have mm. um, a bit of purpose behind it of what I want to do. And I want it to be an album. Um, and that feels a little more scary, right? Because now I've got like pressure I've put on myself, but that can be good as well. Well, I mean, I don't, I, mean, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about this, but I mean, f to me, it, it sounded a little bit more abstract and, and I really like that because it's going in a different direction. 
Thanks. I mean, I like it. I mean, I like it when people go off in different directions, and I really love it when cool. artists just take a huge left turn. So you remember, like Talk Talk in the in the oh, in the eighties yeah. with this big pop band, and they went off and made Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock, right? And yeah. you go, "What the hell is this?" Yeah, and actually, yeah. you mentioned it earlier this week, but I I also think the new Regis album is a bit like that, it, but in a more I mean, it sounds enormous, and it's but it sounds like nothing this guy has ever made before that I know of. Anyway, I mean, I'm, I don't have his entire catalogue, but it just seems to be so different. Yeah, but, I agree. I read on Boomcat, I think, that he used the uh, he had a producer and mixing engineer, and I um, German band. I I'd have to look. Um, big, oh, is that? Oh, I just I just send a Neubauten. I think so, and I wasn't going to try to say the name out loud because. Oh just, man, I always struggle with that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, there is there is some you know it's there's some thought behind that, and you can tell, and that, that album is is banging, like you like you said, it, and it sounds really good on the Rads. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it does. But I was listening on the Polaris two last night, um, and it's really. Oh, that's right. That. You've got a pair. You've got a. Two pairs of campfire earphones, right? Yeah, Solaris and Polaris too. And you um, can definitely definitely see why I absolutely love the Polaris. Yes, and we are so in the minority here. Um, oh, bef- before I get all excited about the campfire audio, I was going to say, um, oh, I really appreciate what you said about the new works. Um, what, what I feel like has kind of served me well is um, kind of a sense for melody, mm. which... which I have had successes with, right? But I think possibly for some people, if there's a whole album of it, it's kind of like, well, there's another one, you know? And I I guess, (laughs) I don't know. I guess for people that create, you know, things that kind of come easy to us, we kind of tend to chuck them to the side time to time. But for me, what I felt I wanted to do, which isn't by any means an original thought, but I, I wanted to do away with that just playing melodies. So it's more of a collage work mm. you know and i suppose it could be sort of linked to earlier 2000s and farben and that kind of thing but it's i think it's a bit more regis than farben you know maybe the especially from this last album it just mm. i don't know i have no perspective on it. It, it when i hear them now i'm kind of like what am i doing but i'm really happy with it so i'm nearly done and uh hopefully it ends up in a good place but um well keep going because I mean, yeah. You, I mean, you are somebody who has made lots of very melodic electronic music records, right? And they've sort of, they've. I mean, I hope you don't mind me saying this. In like the last five, six years, they've sort of been variations on that theme. Although I think Dead Start Program, the most recent one, was probably a little bit more. Well, uh, maybe you were pulling a little bit more away from that. I don't. I don't know. You're probably going to correct me here, but no, I um, have no perspective on it. So you right? Okay. So I think it's good to kind of go off into a more abstract, less melodic direction, because yeah. otherwise you'll you'll pigeonhole yourself, right? You'll be like that guy who makes that sounding record every couple of years, if you know what I mean. I think it's good for it's it's good to challenge yourself, but I, I find there's a there's a danger to that because I do have some friends I really look up to that were basically like I don't do that anymore, and then sort of struggled to learn technology and learn and learn and learn and just Mm. to be unhappy to finally realize like okay you know that thing that comes really easy to you you're the only one that can do that (laughs) you know so i find there's a danger there of just of being like i'm not gonna do this but then it's Mm. like well why am i trying to reinvent the wheel but 
I feel a lot of the production actually on on the works we're talking about um, are actually a little more. Well, they're just as inherent to me because they sort of focus more on collage and using samples. Even though I'm creating all the samples, it's kind of a hip hop production mindset, even though I'm making huh. sort of electronic stuff with it. Um, maybe we can talk about it when I'm more, f when I have more of an idea of what's going on with it. But, um, but yeah, right. getting, getting to the, um, if we can, unless you have, a, I'd be happy to no, you talk can. further, but um, yeah, the Polaris, um, I think from what I've seen, cause I, I do surf around, I, I like to procrastinate on YouTube. So I see a lot of this, <laughs> right. It's my one only, uh, yeah, my, my vice when I'm trying to get things done, I have to get away from the rabbit hole of, uh, yes. things, but, um, I find everyone sort of saying how, how boomy those are and this and that. And, and then I hear about the incredible bass on the Solaris and, um, I, I think I asked you about that. Like, well, I mean, if I put on, there's a, there's, um, is it Borderlands or something? Moritz and Juan Atkins? I mean, that. Mm. That that shines through in a great way, but um, again, I feel like a lot of these frequency graphs and specs, you know, if it says it goes down to ten hertz or something, which I'm guessing both of these IEMs do, it's like okay, well, one of them does in more of a flat way, and one is really rolled off, and even if you can hear a small amount of dBs down that load, technically they're there, but I mean, I think, well, again, it's just everything's preference, right? But you've got one of the nicest sound systems in Berlin, probably multiples, right? And that that is full range sound and it's not exaggerated. It just, it is full range. So I'm mm. listening, when I'm listening to over ears, planars or IEMs, like I expect it to sound that way. And I don't think the sound is bloated unless there's something wrong with the tuning, right? So. Um, I'm not getting that from the higher end models there, but the Polaris is like, you know, it's a little bit backed off too on the painful bits. It's just very nice and smooth, yes. but I, f yeah. I feel that energy. And again, it's, it's more the type of music we listen to. There's a lot of stuff happening below 60 that if you're listening, if you're listening to jazz or classical, you, you're not going to miss those because they're not so much there unless there's like a timpani freak out or something you know but um yeah so uh, yeah it's it's more genre dependent but I, I really need my playback to extend and if it doesn't i start having anxiety attacks because i might not be <laughs> able to hear a note and i think like oh shit i need to go and remix that it doesn't it doesn't sound right so um yeah and, and yeah. if i'm understanding you correctly john are you saying that you actually that you you don't find the solaris as satisfying or as um informative as you would like them to be in the polaris are more your thing yeah that, that is what i'm saying i probably listen to the polaris more than any of the campfire earphones even though i i absolutely i really love the solaris i was playing um underworld second toughest in the in the infants on them and i i've never heard anything like it and there is that on that first track. There is that. Well, for me, it's. Kind of, I guess it's a fairly low note that sort of pulses through it, and that comes across. But I'm also wondering whether it's a fit thing, you know, with the Solaris because they're bigger, right? But I've got the right. exact same tips on both, so it should. Um, 
And I remember telling, I remember actually telling Alex, like, Am I doing what? Am I doing this wrong? Because I was like, I've, I've, I'm shoving these like into my brain. He's like, don't do that, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, yeah, am I not that. getting a good? Am I not getting a good fit? You know. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the Solaris, there's a is it a 11 millimeter dynamic driver for the base? You know. I mean, yes. I actually, I do actually mean to test them against a pair that Alex has because maybe there's it, it does happen. There could be something wrong with my tuning. So. Mm. Let me double check. Um, but again, like if I put on, I think again, it's Borderlands. It's it's Moritz and Juan Atkins. And I mean, mm. you know, I, I love his mix downs because it's basically like, if you don't have a playback system capable of playing back my music, then it's not for you, you know? So um, <laughs> if, if that sparks any interest out there by anyone, um, all the Moritz von Oswald productions, uh, well, the stuff with Mark... Ernestus as well back in the day, the basic channel mm. and everything. Um, but I mean, even the current productions are are very different from what you would hear from yeah, basically what's allowed to be deemed a mix down at this point. Um, because mm. it's harder to get the level up to horrible loudness words levels. So anyway, it's more of a hi-fi music. But um yeah, so the um it, it's odd there's there's certain releases that that do work on the solaris for me just fine but then we're mm. listening to something like uh you you and i are both big boards of canada fans and i find yes. their their mixes are a little bit tilted towards a bit of harshness and openness and that works pretty well that I mean that works well on works great on the rads and the polaris but on the solaris i kind of i can't listen to the it's a little bit peaky and, and because they don't mix sounds so heavy in the low end I'm, I'm missing a bit of that physicality like i think i've had moments where i had the polaris in and i i feel almost you know my brain's being tricked that like my feet feel like there's a sub on and that the floor is shaking a bit so i really <laughs> i really do enjoy that um yeah i mean they are really are if you if you want a, a much stronger sense of more stronger presence of bass but also that presence region dial back a couple of notches it, they're just a perfect fit for that. I guess, yeah, with Boards of Canada, they would be incredible. But, um, yeah, I, I do wonder about your Solaris. I, I, it's a real kind of puzzle as to why they're not giving you what you might expect. But then again, it may be just you you prefer just prefer the other sound signature. I mean, who knows? But I think yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. it's It's all these years of clubbing, you know, it's like... But, I mean, when, when people are making the music, they're... Uh, on a full range system, I mean that—that's how it—it it sounds. It should really extend. It shouldn't just kind of extend. Like, oh yeah, I can I can hear that, and it. I mean, it should hmm. physically extend. That's I think that's the point of the people making the music. So, um, I just prefer it that way. And again, it's all preference, and everybody can argue about everything all the time. And I, I might even change my mind <laughs> in two months. I might hit you up like, oh man, I was really wrong. I really get it now. You know, it just. But that's that's the fun of it. It's just this ever changing exploration, right? A lot of original recordings in the 80s and probably a little bit of the 90s before the loudness wars really kicked in a lot of those early masters they do they have a to my ears better dynamics but they sound a bit thin and that yeah. water boys album is a very good example because it's this is the sea 
is the album. And the original master is just that thin and reedy sound. But the remaster from 2004 is just, it's just too hot. They've crunched the treble or they've done something weird to it. So it has no extension, no life. No, it doesn't spring. It just doesn't do anything. It's just so dead. And it drives me insane. And it makes me want to go back to the 80s remaster, the 80s original master and just listen to that. Is, is th- that something you do? Yeah. Um, people are really opinionated on this as well, but I've, I have some theories about at least what I know about it. Um, mm. So I think two things, um, or maybe many things, but the the original releases, which mostly were being consumed on vinyl, uh, most people had tone controls on their playback system, right? So you could adjust yep. this. And I think the reason some of them are a bit on the thin side is because they're mastered for vinyl and to get all that music on one side, right? We're talking about 20 plus minute sides. Yeah. And um, we both know if you're unfamiliar, you can watch, uh, you watch John's great video with Stefan, but um, the more, the more data you're, the more sound you're placing on each side, the less it can handle low end. So a lot of these masters, I believe were cutting out the low end because it was being mastered for vinyl and then later on, not being remastered for CD, possibly, or mm. something like that, right? And I think that just kind of became the norm of what a master was. So it took a while to kind of rethink, oh, actually, well, now going to digital, it can be totally full range. I think another mm. thing is, I think, well, obviously not in your house, but for the average listener, I think amplification has gotten really weak, like... You know, stock car systems, phones, and and little earbuds, and if things aren't absolutely nuked, they're not going to stand up, right? But if right. you're if you're listening with proper amp- amplification and a really nice sound, and you can hear above and below, it sounds really shocking, right? And and you mm. mentioned the word dynamics, which uh, which a lot of times gets a bit misconstrued, I guess, but um, dynamics with these old records that haven't been remastered and aren't clipped off to make them much louder, the mm. di- dynamics meaning the loudest hits the soft hit. Um, I, I always feel like a good example is newer remasters are like typing in all caps. So let's say you've got like Bernard Purdy playing a pretty shuffle right like and you've got a lot of ghost notes as you bring that level up you're clipping off the louder ones and now you're just getting you know you've got no articulation and right that's what's happening with every instrument in the vocals um there were some um you know like nine inch nails comes to mind where there'd be songs where certain parts are quite low and then certain parts are super loud and you don't get that in a lot of stuff, but songs with that type of creative mixing, those are going to suffer with, with remasters that are getting towards, you know, some stuff is minus six, minus five luffs. And now Mm. you've got streaming services turning that down anyway. So like, you know, what's the point of that? But yeah, so that's what's suffering. Uh, I, I was, I think I mentioned this to you. I was shocked to have a original pressing of, um, of course, of Computer World. <laughs> and, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a really, I could, I have a really nice uh, needle that um, I'm digitizing stuff with, um, a Felian, some Aphelian cartridge. Okay. 
And um, it sounds fantastic to, it's really fun to listen. It's almost like the Sennheiser effect, but a record needle. So it's, it's really fun and sometimes it can mess things up. But um, I got the, uh, you know, the remaster, well, there's so many remasters, but the, the current last vinyl box of the Kraftwerk remaster stuff. And, and you, when you first stick on Computer World, it's much more like, oh, wow, they've really fattened this up. But if you record them both and level match them, uh, sure, the old version is going to have less lows, but the soundstage and detail in that is really fantastic, where the new one sounds a bit monoed, even though it has a bit more punch mm. to it. So it's all preference, like everything else we're talking about. But I think that's a really good example of a remaster. Um, mm. and, and that word is like, what does that actually mean? Um, but I think I think if you have the amplification for it, and if it does sound a bit thin and you just change the tone a bit, I think that experience is, is a lot more satisfying than having somebody have made this decision for you to clip off 8 dBs of loud bits and shove them down your throat, you know? <laughs> so, right. But so I would, I mean, to bring the Polaris back into it, I would much rather listen to a sort of thin 80s CD file um, and then run it through the Polaris to sort of fatten and juice it up a little bit and go that route because it's, I mean, I'm using the earphone as a tone control, really. But that for me is one optimal scenario. But yeah, running a remaster through those, I think, yeah, as I've done, I don't know. It, it just, I mean, a lot of my audience will be across this. That a lot of people listening will know, you know, just how painful many modern remasters can be. And I guess the bad far outweigh the good, which is why when I bought a whole bunch of CDs last year, I just went back and bought the original masters. I'd never, I didn't really touch a remaster unless it had a bunch of bonus tracks that I really wanted. So like all the right. Ryko stuff from, um, for the Bowie releases in the early nineties, I bought all of those because they've got songs on there. You cannot get anywhere else. Right. And so the music sort of overrides that sort of nerdy decision. But I mean, how many of your contemporaries and also friends, I guess, John, like, I mean, do your musician friends, are they aware of the loudness wars? Do they care? Do they just go, oh, that's how it is? I mean, I know Stefan obviously really cares about it, but he's probably the exception rather than the rule, I would think. I I think most, most producers, musicians I know are just sort of more like, well, this is how it is. Right. Um, but I, I, for myself, I find kind of a a happy middle ground in it where mm. the louder it goes, there's some compromises there, but there's sort of a threshold there where some, some things have changed, but I'm not starting to distort the music. Um, and uh, I think most of the... Once in a while, you hear the mastering engineers getting together, like, look, we need to set a new luffs level. And I think that part of part of the movement for change there is the streaming services turning stuff down of just being mm. like, look, like, music is fine at this level. But then now there's a stop of mastering engineers like, yeah, but if you just deliver it at that luffs level versus delivering a high luffs level master and then they turn it down, that will still sound more exciting than... You know, and I, that just comes down to preference. And for me, again, I feel amplification. But um, 
It's out there. It's changing. There are some very expensive records that are deemed unlistenable, right? Like I think there's the one Metallica one and the one Chili yeah, Peppers yeah. one. And I mean, that's that's just so incredible of like how many tens of thousands of dollars to f- to finally end up at a place where like you just actually can't listen to it. It's it's pretty wild chain of errors. But so I think everyone's learning as they go along. Um, I think one thing, I don't know if you and I discussed it or not, but, um, is that perhaps there could be two masters, one for streaming and just sort of every day, I just want to hear music. I don't want to listen to this stupid podcast with you two guys <laughs> talking about, you know, I just, just want my sure. music. I don't want yeah. to know where it comes from. Just shut right. up. You don't know. Loud sounds better. That's, that's totally fine, man. Um, um, but Perhaps, you know, uh, two masters, one one general and then one hi-fi master, which is, you know, choose whatever bit rate and sample rate you want, but essentially it's not delivered at a louder luffs level. And interestingly enough, that kind of exists already. A lot of the um, 12 inches or albums, yeah, I mean, anything cut to vinyl that you and I buy, hmm. most, more cases than not, there is another master that's being cut to vinyl because if you cut these digital masters to vinyl, it can be done. And I know Stefan does it as well, but it's, it's, it's starting to get a bit weird. And uh, so there, there, there's a lot of labels of promos and things and even things that I put out, I'll get two masters for approval and there'll be a vinyl master and then the digital master and the vinyl one Mm. will generally just be not, it'll be EQ'd and dynamics and, Whatever has to be done, but it's not getting its head chopped off. Um, so, but you know, then there's the thing of the average listener. If you just t- give somebody these two versions and you don't tell them anything, uh, the majority will pick the louder one, right? And that makes total sense because not everyone's listening to angel plated <laughs> lobster right. speakers. You know? <laughs> um, but that's like our thing. That's our that's our fun thing to do, and that you know, we're, we're more of a minority in that case, but I, I think that would be something real that, that could happen. And, um, so here's a question. I mean, cause you run your own label and you sell your own music through Bandcamp, right? Why don't you sell your vinyl master as a download? I just had that idea before you asked me that question. So right. I think, um, yeah, I think that's something that, um, I'll give a try, uh, Perhaps with the new, perhaps with the new record, yeah. Like, let's offer two, two ways to enjoy this. Because I think Bandcamp is the definitely the platform where this could potentially catch on. Because if you're buying from Bandcamp, you generally care about the artist. You might be more likely to care about sound quality. I mean, generally, people who care about sound quality in the entire planet are with such a, with such a, a small minority of people that the idea of like Warner's putting out a new whatever record with two masters is just, it's just never going to happen. But changes at the sort of small fan base level can happen and can influence those, you know, bigger players over time. Um, And I, uh, this is, I mean, this idea of two masters has been bounced around. I've heard it for a while and I've always sort of poo-pooed it because I've never been, been able to see how that could be executed in real life. But, yeah, now we're talking, as you've just said, you know, like Bandcamp seems to be the ideal place for that. So and people yeah. people then can, can compare them and, you know, which is, 
a whole other nerdy pursuit that a lot of audiophiles like to get into, but fair enough, you know? Um, but it's it's quite easy to try for anybody if you've got a, a remaster mm. and, a, and an original and you level match them, basically you'd have to probably turn the remaster down loads, um, but then yeah. you switch back and forth the blind test. I mean, you will... More, more cases than not, the, the original, I think, is going to shine in a lot of ways. Um, the remaster right. may have more bottom end, which may be more fun too so you, it depends on the release and the mastering but could you do it for existing records that in your catalog john i mean you must have the um, vinyl masters knocking about somewhere and you could just put them up you could put parabolas up or something like that and see what <laughs> happens if you do this I'll, i will write the wazoo out of it because okay. i think it's a fa fascinating experiment but <laughs> well that would <laughs> I mean, be that would be up for compact to do funny enough i'm so disorganized course, so yeah. what i would right. i would i don't know if they may have those but i think sometimes the vinyl master just sort of gets cut and forgotten about i right. should still have my mixes though but in a lot of cases you know like you just you lose hard drives or whatever and i there's definitely things i just don't have anymore um but i think going forward it's a good idea I, well i'm getting much more organized there's you know my certain projects i just i need to be sure i have the stems because something may come of it so yeah Right, getting getting right. much more organized. I mean, back in the day, you would like, you didn't have stems or anything. You would like, some people still do this, but you just use the mixing board as an instrument. Um, I'm sure Mark and Moritz work this way. And you're mixing down to two tracks. And uh, well, I mean, you still you still have a you still have a master of the of the mix. But I mean, all this, the session bits just are probably not saved. You know, it's mm. just it's been recorded, and that's the end of it. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't know how many how. <laughs> how much legal wrangling would be required to sort of get compact on board with this? I mean, you, the label through which you've released several albums or many albums. Um, well, I mean, it'd be just be uh, fine to have them do it as well. Um, but, but do you think a label like that would, do you think they would see it as confusing the marketplace or would they be okay with it? Or Yeah. I think, like you said, the Bandcamp thing might be a, an easier uh, testing ground because there there is a bit of... Um, there's a bit of education that comes along with making that choice, right? Like if, if I was just, you know, 30 years ago, if I just saw, let's say we call it vinyl master, mm. I might think like, Ooh, that, that sounds really interesting. And then maybe I'd compare it. And then it's like, well, why does the other version sound so much po more powerful? Not, you know, not realizing that it may be the opposite, but you know, not not having the know-how of like, well, what you need to do is import them both into your DAW and then put a blindfold on, and then, you know, so um, it's it's a little it's a little tricky, especially for bigger companies, I think. But I think mm. once once the ball gets rolling, or I don't know, man, it's a thing, right? Because I mean, we we all e either enjoying music or making it like the, the, it doesn't in no. Well, it depends. Some of the EDM stuff is sort of mastered as it's being produced. But I think for for the most part, there's no point in the production process that the music sounds that way. So that's kind of a funny thing to think about, right? It it basically it's it's written and labored over and you know, the mix is calibrated as to a certain level if you're doing it a certain way. Mm. It's nowhere near levels that it's delivered as to the consumer so um 
and then it's labored over and then it's mixed and then it's checked and then it's delivered to the label and then it's just fucking <laughs> smashed, you know? So it's, it, it's even this thing that the artists themselves, again, some do work into level uh, ways of getting the level up and they just deliver that. But I think a big majority is still traditionally doing mixes at, at mixed levels. And then uh, even for myself, it's like, uh, please, uh, please have a listen to the masters. Uh, let me know if they're approved. Right. And it's, that's the first time after many hours of, of what I'm doing um, that I hear the finished product. And a lot of times mm. it's like, Oh shit. You know, or like I'll open up the, the, the mix file and it's like, God, how do I even compare these two? And then you just kind of think like, well, that sounds okay. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you just kind of have to let it go at that point. But that that's a reality that the stuff that that people are are listening to is something that the artists just aren't it's not a part of the process for the artists. Does this affect you when you're making music for more for club playback? Say say for example your 12-inch releases. I mean, do you do you lean towards a hotter master for that environment or no? Um, I, th I think the use used to, but mm. now, especially with everything sort of digital, if something is, let's say a DB or two lower, it's not a big deal because on the mixer, you've got a gain thing mm. and you see the meters are quite easy to read, even for non-mix engineers. And you just kind of see like, oh, the track I'm playing is hitting this number. The one I'm about to play is below that. Let me turn the gain up. You know, I think a, a mm. lot of DJs are just kind of quickly learning that in like week one. Um, so sure. <laughs> as long as the system has headroom, um, I don't know for my music, I know for German bass, it's quite different for German bass. It really has to be at a certain point, but even that is coming, starting to relax a bit. Um, so are you saying you're seeing a trend towards less crushed masters, you know, coming out? I mean, is it, is this the direction you think things are going? I mean, it was that too much of a. I think I'm just draw. being. I'm just being hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if you're talking to Stefan all the time, I mean, his work is obviously very carefully considered, and I mean, I know he does have to deliver some, you know, masters as the label or the artist wants, but I think his heart is absolutely in preserving dynamic range. I mean, he's not one of these guys that sold himself out to just, you know. <laughs> mastering for any money i don't think so and it shows it shows in his work i think for sure he's he's one of the best in the world i, I have two funny stories on that um hope this doesn't tarnish it, it just is just a reality of things but um um well the the newest master he'd done which was for my last release on my label palette which was um called moving 909s and it has a plaid mix which is gonna make me happy forever but when he when he sent me those masters and I I load them into a doll right with all my meters just to see what's what's going on and mm. and I remember telling him ooh you you naughty man minus eight luffs you know and he's just kind of like <laughs> yeah yeah but you know, it doesn't sound that way so I think Stefan Stefan prides himself in I can make it competitive but I can make it competitive in a way that doesn't sound like it's suffering, right? So I think he's mm. able to straddle that line a bit 
with a bit more expertise than somebody just kind of throwing on ozone or something at home, right? Like things start to suffer quite quickly and start to get squashed. Mm. So there's a few more, there's a few more personal tricks in, in some of these guys sleeves to get some level without things starting to get bad. Um, mm. but, uh, the other story was, uh, my friend, Justin Maxwell, who I also produce with, um, he had gotten me a birthday gift one year and it was, um, it was a visual waveform readout of one of the tracks on the signs under test album. Mm-hmm. And you can see sort of like an intro bit and an outro bit, but the rest of it is just like a, a solid bar, right? <laughs> and right. Uh, I think uh, I was visiting Stefan and uh, he said, oh man, nice shirt. Uh, and I think it was like, what track is, what track is that? And I said, oh, that's, that's mine. You mastered it. And he said, oh, <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> you know, like that, uh, that doesn't look, that doesn't look good, but uh, the track does sound good. And it's not that loud. I don't think that, I don't think the t-shirt really represents accurately uh, all the all the dynamic range of uh, you know, um, but that was that surprised him of like who the fuck did that you know it's like that's you and I put it on a t shirt. Um, did you make him that. one? Did you make him a t shirt? No, it, was, uh, it wasn't his birthday. It was just for me. But I'll oh, I'll, right. make, I'll make him one of of something one day. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, John, to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, same here. It's a real pleasure to be on, man. Thank you so much. It's it's really great to talk to a musician about playback gear and audio gear that we're both familiar with. You know, I think that's really cool to sort of get that sort of find that crossover point, which is yeah. what I'm really trying to do these days. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, man. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and our guest today, John Tahada. Links to many of the things discussed in this podcast can be found in the SoundCloud show notes. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt. <laughs>